Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. chat with David Mizajewski about spring gardening to attract birds, butterflies, and wildlife into your garden. David is a naturalist with the National Wildlife Federation and the author of the amazing book. It's called Attracting Birds, Butterflies, and Other Backyard Wildlife. And as the National Wildlife Federation's media personality, he's also an author and blogger for them. He's also contributed to a number of publications, and you can see him on all kinds of TV shows. All over, you know, Conan O'Brien to Wendy Williams, you'll see him on TV, um, and a lot of different radio shows like us right here on Big Blend Radio. We like it when he comes on the show. Yeah, we do. We get to talk about the Garden for Wildlife program that the National Wildlife Federation has set up, and actually it started in, in the early 70s. It's an incredible program, uh, but David's joining us to talk about what we can do this spring to attract our wild, feathered, and furry, and even scaly friends. We like scaly friends here in the desert in Tucson. Uh, But anyway, go to the website, nwf.org forward slash garden. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm so excited to be back. Hey, so we're really happy to have you back on, too. I mean, it's getting to that. I know we're still in winter, depending where you live. I know. is, Is it cold where you are? You're back east. Yeah, it's actually not too bad. We've had a little bit of a crazy winter. Um, We've had, you know, it was in the teens a few weeks ago, and then a couple days ago, it was in the upper 60s. Today, it's, you know, it's in the 40s, which is about right for Washington, D.C., where I live. Hey, yeah, well, we're a little bit warm. The 40s are kind of what we walk in the morning, you know. We thought of you this morning in our early morning walk. The first thing we saw was an owl hopping, house hopping, and landing on people's homes. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah we, actually, cool. we see the owl. They seem to be seasonal. Is, is that <clears throat> true? I mean, it seems like in this time of year, we see October the... October they start. Yeah. We seem to see them. Is that... Is, it is depends it on that? the species, but, you know, some mm-hmm. owls are certainly uh, migratory or partially migratory. So could also be, too, that, um, you know, depending on the season, even if they are resident species, that... Um, you know, food might be a little bit harder to come by at this time of year, so they might be a little bit more uh, active at times where maybe in other parts of the year they're not. And, of course, it could also be that at this time of year, um, germane to what we're going to be talking about today, that a lot of birds are actually out there scoping out potential nesting places, looking mm-hmm. for mates, even at this point in the winter, in preparation for spring. That's what I think because the doves are back too, yeah, and they're they're searching. We have doves that kind of crash land into trees, you know, <laughs> and flap their wings a lot because the trees are really thick. Some of the ones they're choosing to go into, and then you know, a few months later, you see there's a nest in there. Yeah, right. Cool. That's exactly it. 
Hmm. And that's that part of, I know with the Garden for Wildlife program, one of the most important things is to have shelter and, and places, for, those are two things, shelter mm-hmm. and places yep. for, you know, the feathered friends and for the furry and for the scaly, because I want to talk about scaly friends today too, um, have a place for them to raise their young. So don't go right, chopping yeah. your trees. <laughs> right, yeah, and, and thank you for representing the you know the scaly portion of the the backyard wildlife because they tend to be the the least loved group of wildlife. Everybody loves birds and butterflies, and you know bees are getting a lot of attention nowadays. And um, you know a lot of our our reptile and amphibian friends, um, you know, they need help too. So, and there's yeah. things that you can do to help support them, and things you might do, especially in your part of the world, you might have you know venomous snake species that you don't want to attract. But, um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so you brought up cover and places to raise young. Those are two of the four habitat components that everybody can add into their yard or whatever garden space that you have available to you to help out the local wildlife. The other two are food and water. And those four mm-hmm. things, food, water, cover, and places to raise young, make up a habitat. If you provide those things and then you maintain your yard or your garden and you know, what we call a sustainable way and a natural way that doesn't rely a lot on pesticides and chemicals and practices, water conservation, and so on. Those are the five things that you need in order to have your yard or garden recognized by the National Wildlife Federation as a certified wildlife habitat with our Garden for Wildlife program, which, as you um, just mentioned, is celebrating its 45th anniversary this year. We founded this program um, back in 1973, and we're going strong, and our goal really is to continue to create this really amazing network, this movement of people mm. who recognize that, you know, each of us has the power to do something really good and important for the local wildlife, literally mm. right outside our door, you know, in our yards or, again, mm. whatever garden. You might live in the city Patio. and you might not have a yard, but you could be container gardening on your balcony, on your rooftop. You can get involved in a community garden, so on and so forth. So that's what the Garden for Wildlife program is all about, and it's 45 years old. It's pretty exciting. It's exciting. I'm yeah, super excited. I I, I got every time I go on the website and everyone do this because it's fun, <laughs> nwf.org forward slash garden, and I got so sucked into there because, <laughs> you know, last time you were on the show, Nancy, I was like, we're going to go around now and start like, you know, do you have a certified garden? Who has a wildlife habitat around here, you know? And, yeah. you know, because we've seen some hotels and we were talking about different communities we've been to, and I was like, oh, you know, we've got to do this. And we were talking about um, – doing like as we travel this year we're going to be going up to Kentucky and we're going to we have all these you know trips going to parks and things but we're thinking like we want to go in and video all these different habitats you know then especially places that people can see and on the website today I saw this whole list you have of gardens that people can go like all these arboretums across the country I'm happy to see that Tucson here in our botanical gardens which is awesome they've got solar panels and all kinds of cool stuff here um, that they're one of the certified garden habitats too and so this is a really good way for people thinking about doing anything to go in the, the whatever local arboretum that, that's doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we that we try to do with the Garden for Wildlife program is is give people, you know, all of the knowledge and the resources to be able to take these these principles and apply them to their own space. And one of the strengths of this program, in my opinion, is that, you know, it relies on basic wildlife biology, you know, the food, water, cover, places to raise young. That's right out of like, you know, wildlife biology 101. And 
the cool thing about it is that because we, you know, here in America where the National Wildlife Federation kind of focuses our work, you know, we're an incredibly diverse country in terms of all of the various ecosystems. We're a big country, you know, so we have forests and we have deserts and we have mountains and we have wetlands and we have subtropical areas and we have temperate rainforests. The cool thing is, is that you can apply those, those four habitat principles to really any kind of environment, you know, and so how you guys are going to create your wildlife garden in, in Arizona is obviously going to be very different than somebody in uh, Portland, Oregon, or here in Washington, D.C., or mm -hmm. in, in Iowa, right? Um, and that's great because anybody can do it, you know. It's just a matter of figuring out, you know, what the best native plants are to put into your yard. That Those are what how you're primarily going to provide food and cover and places to raise young. And um, then, you know, you just throw out a water feature and, you know, that's pretty much it. And, and the plant palette obviously is different all around the country. Um, you know, if you're talking about cover, you know, plant densely, you know, you could also do things like build a brush pile, but, you know, as an example of something that you mm. might not do everywhere, if you live in a fire prone area, maybe a brush pile isn't great. If you live in a really, you know, dense urban area where maybe rodents are an issue, you probably don't want to do a brush pile. But if you live in a rural area, hey, that might be a really great thing to do. So there's an infinite number of ways, literally millions of combinations of those four components that people everywhere can do and still help out wildlife. And again, it really boils down to the core of it all being your plants. That's why this is mm -hmm. called the Garden for Wildlife Program, because in nature, plants are the foundation of habitat for all wildlife. So if you plant the native plants that the wildlife co-evolved with, that are in sync with the wildlife's life cycles, like migration and when they're having their babies and such, then, um, then you're going to create a really, not only you know, an incredible wildlife habitat, but a beautiful landscape or other garden space that you can enjoy too. And that's really what Garden for Wildlife is all about. I know you've got some great tips on the website, too, and when you talk about native plants, um, you know, it's, everywhere is different, and it, and, and it depends on where you're living, too, because you have homeowner associations, and um, that's the time to get on the board and start saying, hey, everybody, let's, let's be a whole community that's certified. I'm just saying, just That'd pushing that. That would be cool, wouldn't it? I know. That's why, why we have to have, you know, people on board <laughs> so we well, can and, push and our agendas. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know, but we actually do have a – community wildlife habitat level certification. Um, so again, if you go on the website that you guys have mentioned a couple times, nwf.org slash garden, scroll down and on the bottom right side, you'll see um, in communities. And we actually have um, several dozen different communities all around the country that have done exactly what you were just saying. They've, they've mm -hmm. gotten together, they form basically a, a habitat team, and that could be made up of just citizens and volunteers, oftentimes there are uh, you know, city folks, you know, city parks and municipal people involved, and your local plant nursery person might be involved, and they all kind of create uh, really some goals on how many individual wildlife gardens they want to create in their community, how many education programs they're going to do to help spread the word. Um, you know, a lot of communities do native plant sales, or they'll, you know, at their annual uh, um, Arbor Day festival or something, they'll, they'll have a booth, that kind of thing. And we work with them to set goals based on population size and what's realistic, and um, we help support those efforts so that over the course, usually it takes a couple of years to achieve all of those goals, and then the National Wildlife Federation will designate that community as a community wildlife habitat, and it's a pretty big honor because, like I said, only a few dozen communities, uh, I think actually we're, we're a little bit over 100 at this point, uh, but still, that's a drop in the bucket for all of the communities that are out there in the country, so it's a pretty, again, significant and it's also something that we want to see a lot more of. Well, that's something we'll help you with for sure because – We'd love um, that. Well, 
and this, I mean, we're going to talk about spring for sure, but just to touch on the community thing, it's such an important role of getting, and I know you're going to come on some future shows talking about getting kids involved, but to get kids involved and, you know, get them off the phone and, and be part of it, whether it's mm. schools. And we, last time you were on the show, we were talking about Ajo, Arizona, this tiny town outside of Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument. And it's like, wow, you know, we went to different schools. I mean, everywhere we turned, there, this, there was this garden. And for us, it, of course, we were going to different national park units, but as soon as we heard that it was a certified habitat, you know, the whole community were like, okay, we want to go. And yeah. we're in this middle of this project talking about... Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. About um, putting the eye back into community, Nancy started an article series in our upcoming magazine talking about communities and the balance in, of responsible tourism and how both help each other. It's actually just even what we were just talking about with Hillary, uh, the guest before you, talking about Orcas Island in Washington State, how everybody's very environmentally friendly and, um, you know, native plants type and, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that would be – I'd love to see the whole island be certified. But don't you think that it also plays a role of a community – when they do this kind of thing, then people coming in to a community as a as a visitor and a guest, um, that they're actually seeing native wildlife right there, the right birds, and that it actually adds to the economy by bringing in native plants and becoming a certified habit, uh, wildlife habitat. Absolutely, yeah. It's that's that's what the community really means, right? It's about not just, you know, doing this in your own yard, which is fantastic, but it's about making all of those connections, meeting your neighbors, um, making this a priority for your elected officials, and really help bolstering the, um, the, the industry side of it. You know, uh, plant nurseries can only sell things mm. that customers want to buy. And so that's been a challenge yeah. um, over the, the years with native plants, because when we say plant natives for wildlife and then people go to their nursery and the nursery doesn't carry natives, it's difficult. So you yeah. know, the, the, the act of creating a wildlife garden and participating in this program and even, you know, getting involved at the community level can actually really be a, uh, in a way, a powerful, uh, you know, like citizen activism kind of thing, right? You can yeah. help drive what goes on in your community by being an informed consumer, by asking for, again, the right plant material the, uh, and things like that at your local nurseries. That's going to create a market for these things. And there's, there's only so much we can do as a national nonprofit organization to make yeah. those things happen. What everybody, but if everybody that is interested in seeing more birds and helping out the wildlife does it, you know, the, the, the nursery industry will be inundated with consumer requests for this, this kind of plant material. And guess what they're going to do then? They're going to start carrying it. Exactly, right. and it's a cleaner environment because I know people travel the world to look at, you know, they have the bird list, their life list, you know. And the other part, too, is um, what I love about the native planting, and, and especially with the nurseries, it is very hard to keep these nurseries going if people don't buy these plants and understand these plants. And um, we know the, the nursery industry after a, a few visits to um, growers and, and things like that over the years. And it's, it's hard for the smaller nurseries if 
the consumers do not have this education and start to take care of their garden and make this connection that you're doing with with this whole program. Um, I love the fact that if you go to nwf.org, just forward slash native plant finder, you can learn right there what kind of plants to put in your garden because when you go to some of these big box stores, they'll tell you, oh, this is a native to this area and that will grow here. And I, I know about spending hundreds to thousands no, of dollars you you planting things that it's, it wasn't. It's kind of um, modified to grow in this desert area, but actually mm-hmm. it belongs in another desert area. But if you go to a native plant nursery, these people specialize. They know exactly what kind of microclimate, <laughs> where you should plant it yep. in your house. You know what I mean? There's this whole different level of um, this education, and yeah, and you will be successful sure. and save money by doing this, by doing the native plants. Well, yeah, and I'll tell that. you, too, the, um, the native plant finder that you just mentioned is something new that um, that we're doing, and it's really neat. If, if any of the listeners out there have are familiar with a guy named Dr. Doug Tallamy uh, from the University of Delaware. He's got a fantastic book called Bringing Nature Home. He's one of the first actual scientists that have studied the impact of native plants, particularly on wildlife, when we use them in you know, our cities and towns and backyards and gardens and communities. And no surprise, the, his science backs up what we've always said at the National Wildlife Federation, that if you plant it, they will come, and that natives actually support far more wildlife than non-natives. Because if, th- mm. if you think about it, most of our garden plants historically have been selected by the, the garden industry specifically because they have no value to any wildlife, right? They, nothing eats them, and you know, most people generally have been taught you know, yep. wildlife is bad in the garden historically. And so essentially what you end up with, most, you know, the conventional American landscape is pretty much – it's kind of a dead zone. It doesn't really support anything. Yeah. Lawns don't really support much. Most of our ornamental exotic plants like don't support any kind of wildlife at all. And so really, the unfortunate thing is that even if it looks green, it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of, of, of having fake turf and plastic plants out in your yard when it comes to supporting the local wildlife. Now, if you plant natives, many of which, by the way, are already in cultivation, they're beautiful, they're ornamental, mm-hmm. um, and we're trying to get more of that native plant material out there, actually support exponentially more wildlife species. And so, you know, everything from insects like butterflies that need host plants for their caterpillars, to native bees that are on the decline, to the songbirds that rely on the native plants for food sources, not only the plant sources like seeds and berries and nuts, but also the insects they support. You know, so mm-hmm. most people don't realize that songbirds and most of the backyard birds that we're trying to attract have to have healthy insect populations because 96% of them feed their babies insects, mostly caterpillars or butterflies and moths. So if you're planting your yard filled with plants that do not support butterflies and moths and other insects, guess what? You are eliminating a critical food source for birds in the springtime and the foods that they need to feed their babies. And that even goes for hummingbirds. You know, people see hummingbirds go to flowers and to nectar feeders, but hummingbirds actually need insects as well, and that's what they feed their babies. Mm -hmm. So it really starts with native plants and then the insect population that they support, which are important wildlife, and many of them are beautiful, like butterflies and bees. But then those insects are the next level on the food chain that you've that you're trying to create, and then you start getting the birds and the other animals that want to eat those insects. So it's all connected. You know, if you look at this big picture, um, tourism is a huge industry all over the world, 
And if you're going to travel somewhere because you want to go see something different from where you live, it would be nice to really see that. And if everybody planted native plants, then you would go and you would see something different. Mm-hmm. But you're quite right. You yeah. know, if you go from you drive two, three hundred miles, or four hundred, five miles, or you fly somewhere and you see, oh, look at those beautiful rose bushes. They look just like at home. Right. Nothing against yeah. roses, but you're not really seeing the authentic place. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're yeah. seeing what you know. It's kind of like the ad on TV. You know, you're going to see that everywhere. Everything's cookie right. cutter. Mm-hmm. You know, like little boxes exactly. on the hillside. Wow. And, you know, and so if you really want to see the different birds, and I just want to say something about insects. They're not. Bad. They're so cool. They're way exactly. cool. so neat, man. And, yeah, and if that's, you just get up close and, and have a good look. They're miniature it, dinosaurs, man. I, I know. <laughs> no, they're really awesome. I mean, of course, there's some species of animals, like we have rattlesnakes. You know, right. and I am. They're cool. Yeah, they're way cool. Yeah, you don't go touch them unless you're really duh. You know, you just don't <laughs> do that. But, you know, if you, like out here in the Southwest, um, when a, when a person plants native plants in a rock garden, oh man, it's so nice. Mm. Yeah, it's such yeah. a nice little rocks provide a little caveat for insects and birds to go in and get the shade and the lizards come out and bask in the sun and you get to, you get to know them and you say oh man look she had babies and you've got yep. little baby lizards running around get those. And, yeah and then you got the hawks going hmm look check at it out look at that. it's <laughs> yeah, so cool it's, it's, it's way cool it's a food chain and, yeah and, and you get to see it and more importantly if you have young children is to show that to them they love bugs and insects oh, yeah. and I mean bugs and they love you know scaly things and that that brings me to the one thing I really want to talk about too because we're talking about spring uh, vernal pools which some parts of the desert do get but I mean this is going to happen most in your 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 mountain areas right where you get or the foothills of mountains where you get uh, snow melt and so that's the thing in spring because that does help some of our scaly friends our, our salamanders are scaly right. <laughs> salamanders are are not scaly. Salamanders are amphibians, so they're in the same group of wildlife as you know frogs and toads, and they actually have um, you know smooth skin for the most part. That um, sometimes can be dry, like in the in the case of of toads, and a little bit bumpy, but not scaly. Um, but most amphibians actually have kind of slimy skin, and they they yeah. actually can um, they 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 breathe and they absorb liquids right through their skin. And that, of course, puts them at a little bit of risk for environmental pollutants more so than some other species. So, yeah, if you can support amphibians, mm. and that, like, that means that you have a – it's a good indicator species that you have a relatively clean environment overall. And absolutely, vernal pools are seasonal pools of you know, small ponds, basically, that fill up with snow melt or, or whatever winter precipitation. And, and by definition, they dry out usually by midsummer. And these are used by many amphibian species as a place where they can raise their young in the springtime because they don't have fish in them. And fish, of course, will eat amphibian eggs. They'll eat the little larvae and the tadpoles oh, yeah. and things like that. And so by evolving to be able to use these vernal pools as a place where they can lay their eggs, they avoid that whole level of predation from fish because, again, fish can't live there when the, the, the pool dries out. Now, most people you know, you're not going to have a vernal pool necessarily on your property, but your garden pond can actually 
kind of replicate that natural habitat. If you are fortunate enough to have a vernal pool, um, either in your yard or in your community, really, really important resource to protect. Um, these things okay. get plowed over all the time. And amphibians return to the same vernal pool. So it really does major oh. damage when, you know, housing development goes in or we put in a new road. And there's just that little puddle over there that nobody really thinks is important. Um, and it actually really is important for these amphibian populations. And destroying a vernal pool could, you know, literally wipe out on a very local level the, you know, the frog or toad or salamander population that relies on it as the place to raise their young in the springtime. So this is interesting to me because in, this isn't a vernal pool, but it's more, more like a our monsoon pool here. So when we get the monsoon season, and it's always at the very beginning of the season, all of a sudden, and these little teeny toads come out. Yeah. And, and I always thought they were frogs, but I've learned now that they're little, you know, spade foot toads. And yeah. there's one toads, little yeah. bit of toads. They're so. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better. You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills, too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically, so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with the 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. They're cute, except for like when you're walking. It, it, I mean, all over. I feel like I have to do ballet because they're. I mean, right. they will cover the ground. They're the coolest thing. But we're like, this is all sand. Where where are they hanging out? And even if the you know, we go dry for a while, you'll still see them on you know, on your walks and in hikes. And so, are they living off of the moisture and the sand? Like, is the sand you know trapping that almost like a vernal pool for them to to breed, or are well, they coming from the winter? Spadefoots are really interesting because they have mm. evolved to be able to survive in desert environments. And there's a few yeah. different species. We have an eastern spadefoot that obviously isn't in the desert, but they basically go dormant. They go dormant under the yeah. sand, and when those monsoon rain, those monsoon rains mm. come, it actually triggers them to emerge, and they immediately head right to where those monsoon pools are filling up to be able to take advantage of them for breeding. And that's what you're seeing. And then, of course, they lay their eggs and all the little babies are hopping around. And then when yep. everything dries out again, they go dormant again and they go under the sand. And they basically, you know, they're like little um, time capsules hidden under the sand waiting for that next rain. It's a really, really cool example of, of how wildlife species evolve to their local environment in order to be able to survive, particularly harsh environments like a desert. Mm. The ones we have are couches, spadefoot. Oh yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. That's right, couches. Mm -hmm. And there, there's one. They have really cool we... um, cat's eyes too. Spadefoots do. Most uh, frogs cool. and toads generally have round pupils, but the uh, the spadefoots have um, you know really kind of cool vertical pupils like like cat's eyes. Oh man, they're they're neat. They're except really for cool. I mean that one hike we did, and they were everywhere. I mean we, we could like, barely ah. walk. I mean we could not walk between that and the mosquitoes, but it was cool. Uh, the other thing too, you know, I mean salamanders. I mean I, they're just 
it's amazing where they live. I mean, that's in the so forest pretty. areas, and I mean, it's a, and when you get to have that, if if you have them in your backyard, I mean, I feel like you're so lucky. I feel that salamanders are one of those species that we're we're going to turn around one day and they're going to be gone. That's how I feel about yeah. salamanders. Well, like I was you saying, know. all amphibians are a little bit of like the canaries in the coal mine because they yeah. they are yeah. very sensitive to environmental changes. And many of our amphibians, just like you know, we, we hear we've been hearing a lot in recent years about the decline of bees um, and and the sh- crash of the monarch butterfly population, and even mm. bats with white nose syndrome. We've lost you know millions of bats across North America in the last five or eight years due to this um, this this fungus mm. that's attacking them um, while they're hibernating. Well, amphibians are also declining globally um, and it's probably a combination of things just like with colony collapse disorder with bees um, it's probably a combination of habitat destruction and competition from invasive species and climate change and exposure to pesticides and in the case of amphibians there's a fungus called the chytrid fungus that is kind of spreading around and really decimating amphibian populations so you're absolutely right those cool couches, spadefoot toads, and whatever mm. salamander species you guys might have there, they're usually the first to go when things go bad. And all mm. the more reason why everybody out there can really take a really important yeah. kind of think globally, act locally action by creating a wildlife garden. You know, these things really do make a difference. And getting back to the idea of community wildlife habitat, when yeah. I do it and you do it and three other neighbors on your blocks do it, the the wow. habitat value to the wildlife actually increases exponentially um, because there's just more of it. And the more concentration of these habitat pockets we have, the more we can make our neighborhoods and our communities inviting to the wildlife that used to live there um, and that got banished because we put too much asphalt and lawn and chemicals everywhere. You know, we can invite those animals back in. And again, we're not talking about mountain lions and rattlesnakes. We're talking about songbirds and hummingbirds and, you know, a Mm. lot of these small amphibian species and incredibly cool insects and even small mammals. Um, So it's a really powerful way to make a difference in a very simple you know, it's a very simple and it's a very personal action. And that's one of the strengths of what this whole Garden for Wildlife program is all about um, for us at the National Wildlife Federation, because it really gives people a rewarding way to make a difference. I mean, let me tell you, when you, yeah, when you do this and you plant a few natives and you put out, you know, a nice water feature and the animals that you were trying to attract show up, I mean, let me tell you that we couldn't provide, we couldn't come up with a better incentive to get people engaged because it works. And it's it's really, really awesome. And it's, you know, when you see the results, it only sparks even more passion in people to want to keep getting, you know, doing this more where they live. And then it introduces them to the bigger world of wildlife conservation and, and moves them into maybe even bigger action. So it's 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 a really fantastic program. And I'm, if you couldn't tell, I'm, I, to this day, after 18 years at the National Wildlife Federation, every day I'm excited to, to, to work on it. It's exciting to me because it just gives everybody a path to follow. You hear about, oh, you know, somebody in the newspaper, oh, plan a native plant, and then it's like, well, where do I start? Where do I begin? And sometimes you don't have those native plant nurseries right at your fingertips, or you don't even know to go to that one, you know. So to me it gives you this path of knowledge that you can go in, okay, this is what I need to do. Um, In spring, everybody's, you know, the end of winter, everyone starts to amend 
their soil. They want to go, oh, I'm going to grow something here. Maybe it's the first time. And they start looking at, I mean, to me, the soil thing is probably one of the most crucial things. And I wondered if you could share some tips because, you know, I'm thinking about the vernal pools and then people putting chemicals on their soil, thinking they're cleaning yeah. the soil or what, I mean, even adding soil and I, the soil. <laughs> we gotta so take care so of let's soil. talk about soil because um, you're right. It really, wildlife gardens start from the ground up. And as people, as winter is progressing, now is the time to be kind of thinking about and making your plans for what you want to do once the weather kind of warms up a little bit or dries out a little bit, depending on where you are, right? And um, yeah. and so soil, right? It's the foundation of everything. Plants grow in the soil, and that you know even more more than anything uh, it is really the foundation of the habitat. Now here's the thing: soil plants evolve to the soils just like they evolve to the wildlife and to the climate and to the rainfall levels in any given area. So if you were planting native plants and your soil is sort of the native soil of the area, then you don't have to do any amendment. Isn't that incredible? You don't have to spend all of this money on chemical fertilizers and, you know, all this other stuff to, you know, bringing in, you know, to make your soil in, say, in Arizona, mm -hmm. the same kinds of soil that we have here in, in the Mid-Atlantic, right, be, to be able to get those same exact plants to grow. If you are working with native plant material, and obviously you're planting the right plant in the right place, you know, if you're planting a native plant that is, you know, used to full sun exposure on a rocky cliff in a spot that has, you know, afternoon shade and a low-lying spot in your yard, it's, it's not going to thrive. But if you match your, just like any plant, you know, if you match your native plant to the specific growing conditions and you have, you know, relatively, you know, good natural soil, you don't have to do a lot of amendment. And you don't have to do a lot of watering once those plants are established, which, of course, is particularly important in desert areas, but it's important everywhere. I mean, we waste a lot of water particularly on lawns in this country every summer and when we don't really need to. So, you know, that said, doing a soil test is not, a, not necessarily a bad idea. You know, most county extensions or university extension agriculture services can do it. Your garden center might be able to do it. And they can tell you kind of what your soil is made of if you, if you want to get that involved with it. And then that will give you a little bit more guidance on what kinds of plants can go in there. But, yeah, you know, without good quality soil that matches the growing needs of the plants you're trying to match, you're absolutely right. You're not going to be as successful in any gardening effort. But again, native mm -hmm. plants generally don't need a lot of amendment. And in fact, some, sometimes you can over amend soil and over fertilize when you're using natives because they are, again, evolved in a, and, and, and can thrive in, in poorer soils in many cases. So that's another mm -hmm. benefit of them. I love the native plants because they, they just all of a sudden one day you turn around and like, woohoo, here I am. Now, if someone's already got like, oh, half of this, you know, my garden's ornamental and, um, you know, should they tear it all out and start over? No, I'm so it, glad you brought okay. that up because um, that's another thing that people, yeah, as we're gearing up for spring and people are looking at all their plant catalogs and fantasizing about, you know, the springtime yeah. in the middle of winter is – the intimidation factor of thinking that, oh gosh, if I want to have a good wildlife garden, I, got, I have to rip all this out. And my answer to that is you don't. I always recommend start small, you know, especially if you're new to this idea. Maybe decide to give up, you know, a 10 by 5 foot patch of your lawn to some native wildflowers and start it there and grow it from there. You don't have to have you know, the know-how or, frankly, the budget to completely rip out your landscape and start from scratch. Whatever you have, 
currently, I can guarantee you probably already is providing some of those elements of habitat, food, water, cover, and places to raise young. Um, so start with assessing what you already have. And, you know, our, 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 our certification is based on kind of a checklist. And you can go to our website, again, nwf.org slash garden, and it's, it's organized by those categories, food, water, cover, places to raise young, and sustainable garden practices. And you can go to each of those pages and read a little bit more about what those things mean and see a checklist of the different kinds of things that you can do in your yard to be able to provide for wildlife. So start by looking at what you already have. And then decide, well, out of this list of 20 things, what one or two things can I do this spring to add a little bit more in this category? And before you know it, you're going to have all of the minimum requirements in each of those categories to qualify to have that wildlife garden be a certified wildlife habitat with the National Wildlife Federation. And, of course, right on the website is where that application is. Um, and you can just load it all in right there. And, again, if you have the basics, that's all it takes to, to start on this wildlife gardening journey. Excellent. Yeah, you know, I think the water thing is important. I was reading, you know, this morning and yesterday that Cape Town in South Africa, of course, we used to live in South Africa. I'm astounded that Cape Town is running out of water and mm-hmm. they, they by April 12th or something, the, that city is going to have no water. I'm astounded yeah. by that fact. And I mean, look at, look at California in these last couple of years. I know. Yeah. You know? It, this, is, I mean, this is crazy to sit back and not do things that can Stop the water. lawn thing. I remember Nancy I tearing the lawn out in, in, oh, in that was so Southern California. Fun. She tore it out and threw wildflowers seeds that were native and she had the best front lawn than anybody so keep up with there the you go tear your <laughs> lawn yeah, out and, you know, it was, and it hey. was on a slant and it was so hard to water without water just running down the street and i when i'd come home i'd look at everybody who had the same kind of curved driveway with the lawn and the waters running down the street with everybody, chemicals in it probably yeah, and everybody had sure. rainbow sprinklers and the water was really hitting the street not the lawn i'm like this is really dumb and all this water just going down the street into mm-hmm. the gutter so one day i just tore the whole thing out i got all these california wildflower seeds and for about yeah, two and a half months i just had this big dirt patch that i watered right. by hand and then in spring oh my gosh i was so amazed at what happened yep. and talk about yep. butterflies and birds was awesome. Yeah. It's a if you I plant it, it will come. Find a lawn and tear it up right now. I know. I'm glad we're talking about this too because, um, like I was just saying, you know, folks out there don't feel like you have to go yes. to that extreme. Now, if you do, <laughs> hey, thumbs up, right? Because of everything we've been talking about, lawns don't provide habitat. They're, you know, they're really reliant on on supplemental watering, which is wasteful, and chemicals and stuff like that. So, and if you have the wherewithal and you can get away with it in your neighborhood, rip out that lawn. But if you don't, like I said, <laughs> it's okay to start small. Set a goal every year to add a new garden bed or add another patch of wildflowers or a few native shrubs. Mm-hmm. And before long, that lawn will kind of shrink and, um, you know, I kind of think of the lawn as the human habitat. You know, it makes us, yeah. Yeah. we like visually to have a little bit of an open space. And if you have kids or pets that want to go yeah. out and play in the lawn or whatever, like, it's okay to have a little bit of lawn. I would just say, you know, don't go crazy with pesticides and fertilizers on it and let it be a natural lawn and let it, some clover and some dandelions grow. That's totally mm. fine. But keep it to a minimum and make sure that you're, again, you've got good native plant material. And, again, eventually – 
you know, you, maybe you'll get to that point where you're going to take up the entire thing and plant a, a xeriscape with drought-tolerant native plants and rocks, um, or, you know, you let it turn right. into a native prairie if you live in the, right. you know, the prairie states or whatever, right? So, um, so there's yeah. so many, again, different ways that you can do it. it doesn't, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to gut your yard to get started. And, again, I think that's a really good goal for folks now is to just kind of make that personal commitment. Like, I'm going to do a few things in my yard this spring to make it better for wildlife mm-hmm. and set a goal of achieving certified wildlife habitat status. And that, you know, again, it's, we try to make it easy. You know, our program is not a, what I call a blue ribbon program. You know, it's not only rewarding the most amazing habitat gardens out there. It, all you have to have is the basics and food, water, cover, and places to raise young and, you know, maintain it in a natural way. And you can actually join this, again, this growing movement of people all around the country and in and the world. We've got some international certified habitats too, but, um, but that's, that's part of the power here. And one thing I want to mention um, that I just yeah. remembered, we're actually doing a promotion this month where if you sign up for our, our, our e-newsletter, which I actually put together every month, um, you'll be entered to win a, just a cool little gift bag with some hand gardening tools and things that can help you out in your garden, as well as a copy of my book, which is called Attracting Birds, Butterflies, and Other Backyard Wildlife. It's a how-to book on how to do all of this. And all you have to do is sign up for our newsletter. And then that way you, you know, you'll have a steady stream of really awesome wildlife gardening information coming from the National Wildlife Federation. And again, frankly, a lot of it is from me, um, blogs that I've written and things like that, along with my colleagues. And so if you go to the nwf.org slash garden um, and click on about, you'll see the newsletter sign up. In fact, if you go to my latest tweet or the National Wildlife Federation's latest tweet, um, I just tweeted about it before we started. So I wanted to remember that because giveaways are fun. Everybody loves to win something. And it's just a little, little perk um, for signing up for our newsletter. And again, it's at the end of the day, it's a great way to get, continue to get tips from us. And I signed up for it this morning. Um, I just want to make sure, because I know this is a podcast, and, and uh, what is it with the giveaway thing, because I know this is going in our March magazine and everything, so I don't want to get people mad at us saying, hey. Oh, yeah, yeah. It. So it, it, is, it is for this month, the, this particular January. offer. However, yeah. we're trying to do a, one of these promotions every month. So even in March, okay. should be, we should have some kind of giveaway. And, you know, it could be anything from one of our – um, one of our feeders that we have in National Wildlife Catalog, where uh, it could be, um, again, a garden tool. It could be a, a partner. We've got lots of partners that we work with, like uh, maybe it would be a, a native bee nesting house. Uh, it, so cool. there's a lot of different things. And, and pretty much every month we're trying to run one of these newsletter sign-up promotions. So so folks cool. can check it out. And the, the prize might differ, but it, it, there'll be an opportunity to win something. <laughs> right on. There won't be any lawnmowers. Yeah, no, there'll be no, no lawnmowers. lawnmowers. But there'll be, there'll be a, a spade to get them out. Um, okay, okay, I got two quick questions before you go. Um, number one, butterfly bush, is that, a really, is, that, is that really a native and good for butterflies, or is that bogus? Because I've read two different things. Yeah, so butterfly bush is not native. Budlia is not a native species to anywhere in North America. It's um, oh. an ornamental plant that originated from um, an Asian, Asian plants. And, yes, it, it is very good at attracting butterflies in terms of providing nectar. However, we don't recommend it at the National Wildlife Federation, and here's why. Number one, it doesn't do anything to support places to raise young for butterflies. It's not a host plant for any butterfly caterpillars. And 
what you want to do is have to have a really good butterfly garden is plant nectar plants that feed the adults, but also the host plants that feed their caterpillars. But even more importantly, butterfly bush, even though it's a beloved plant and people love it and it's nostalgic because our grandmothers and mothers planted it, and it does indeed attract butterflies, it actually is becoming invasive in certain parts of the country. The Pacific Northwest, here in the Mid-Atlantic, it's escaping cultivation and getting out into wild areas, and that is a big, big ecological problem that gardeners can have a huge impact on. So what I recommend is if you, if you don't have a butterfly bush, don't plant one. If you have one, you know, consider replacing it with a really good native shrub. There's many of them, again, wherever part, whatever part of the country you're in, there's going to be some beautiful blooming native shrub that's going to provide the same kind of structure in the garden that might have beautiful flowers that will also attract lots of pollinators like butterflies and bees. And it could even, if you plan right, also be a caterpillar host plant. And if it isn't, then you know, fill in with other caterpillar host plants around it. That's a much better choice than planting butterfly bush. Okay, cool. cool. Okay, because we talked about scales when you first came on the show. I want to play a scaly song for the end of your interview today. <laughs> I like to dedicate music to people. So mm-hmm. this one is called Armadillo because <laughs> we have them in America. And it's, it's yep. from an amazing guitarist, Jim Stubblefield, off of his album Inspiracion. He's also got Tortuga on there, too, so there's your turtles. Um, but armadillos, see, um, when we travel through Louisiana in that oh. area in Texas, you see them on the road as roadkill everywhere. It's, it's sad. Um, people yeah. kind of looked at them as pests. Now, to me, if I had an armadillo in my garden, oh, I would I'd go, I would freak out with <laughs> just, I'd be like, dude, dude. And I remember seeing one when we were filming out in that garden, actually, Hodges Garden I was talking about earlier. Oh, so um, and we were just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there's an armadillo right here. And the cutest thing with the little snout. So, I mean, we shouldn't look at them as pests, right? Aren't they just cool? Can't we just have yeah, them in our garden? They're pretty fantastic animals and pretty interesting and unique. And they're mammals. And, yes, they have mm. these uh, kind of scaly shells. Yeah, they can dig up your garden a little bit. But you know what? In the grand scheme of oh. things, to get upset about, I think that that is probably mm. pr- should be pretty low on the list. Okay, good. So everybody go. If you can get an armadillo in your garden, do it. <laughs> and you have to right. insects for that. See, that's the importance of insects. But if they dig up your garden for your little bed in the soil, then that's, that's giving fine. you soil aeration. That's that's a good thing that's for right. your garden. So I'm just saying. Thank you so much for the insight. And, again, as you know, we love the program. Everybody, go get certified. Get part of it. It's just such a step-by-step program. It's creative. It's fun. So you can go to nwf.org forward slash garden. Also find them on Facebook and Twitter and get involved and get planting and get ready for spring because it's coming. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. Take care. Here it is, everyone. Armadillo.
Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.